I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. I'd like to welcome my colleague, John Michael Seibler. He's filling in for Tiffany while she's off preparing for her law school finals this week. Tiffany, good luck, particularly on Fed Courts. And JM, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be joining you up here. And Tiffany, good luck. This week, we're talking about the court's recent orders and oral arguments, and we'll interview law professor Orrin Kerr. Before we dig into the court's orders list from this week, I have a request. We will be giving out honors and dishonors for the best and worst judicial opinions of the year in our final episode of 2017. So if there are any cases you'd like to nominate, please send them our way with a brief description of why the opinion deserves recognition as either the best or the worst of 2017. You can email us at scotus101 at heritage.org or tweet at us at scotus101. So the court uh, announced uh, some orders this week. There were no grants, which was a little surprising since they are uh, have kind of a light load for the spring. Uh, but there were a few interesting things in the orders. First up, the Supreme Court suspended an attorney by the name James A. Robbins. Now, they apparently meant to suspend a lawyer by that name from New York who lost his client's will and then was disbarred from the New York bar after he forged signatures and made other false statements to claim uh, to cover up his mistake. But instead, the court accidentally suspended James Robbins of California, who apparently worked for the Supreme Court for seven years. <laughs> so quite a mistake to make. Um, Mark Sherman wrote uh, an article for the Washington Post this week all, all about this, and you can check it out. Uh, and he points out that this is the second time this year that the court has mixed up lawyers in their attorney discipline orders. So we wonder what's uh, what's going on there. But I, I'm sure James A. Robbins of California has been reinstated to the Supreme Court bar. Yes, and hopefully on good terms again with his former <laughs> employer. So, J.M., uh, there was an interesting dissent from denial of cert by Justice Thomas. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so that was in town of Vernon against United States. And here, once again, Thomas dived into the original meaning of Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause, this time under the Indian Commerce Clause. And combined with his dissent from denial of cert earlier this year in March in a case called Damien St. Patrick Baston against United States, which dealt with a foreign commerce clause power, he is once again providing plenty of historical material for people who want to go back and are interested in what the commerce clause authorizes the federal government to do. So in this case, the petitioners were town and local citizens who asked the court whether the Indian Commerce Clause authorized the government to take 13,000 acres of land from the state of New York and place it under the sovereignty of an Indian tribe without the consent of the state and local governments. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals answered yes because the Indian Commerce Clause, as it's understood today, gives the government plenary power to regulate Indian affairs. And a federal statute called the Indian Reorganization Act authorizes the Secretary of the Interior to acquire land and trust for Indian tribes. But Thomas writes in his dissenting opinion that neither the text nor the original understanding of the Indian Commerce Clause supports Congress's claim to such plenary power. And then true to form, he writes that the founders, quote, would have been shocked to find lurking in a clause that they understood to give Congress the limited authority to regulate trade with Indian tribes living beyond state borders, the power to take any state land and strip the state of almost all sovereign power over it for the purpose of providing land for Indians. 
Yeah, uh, another line from from the dissent that I really enjoyed. He says it's highly implausible that the founders understood this clause uh, to give Congress the power to destroy the state's territorial integrity. Uh, so uh, certainly a, an interesting uh, dissent from denial of cert. It doesn't seem like there are uh, enough votes on the Supreme Court to <laughs> to reassess the the Indian Commerce Clause cases. Uh, so they're here to stay for now. So also from the denials list, there were two cases dealing with the Second Amendment. The court declined to hear a case on Maryland's ban on the sale of military-style semi-automatic guns. This uh, this came from a law passed in 2012 after the Newtown, Connecticut school shooting. So in reviewing the case, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals on Bonk ruled that such laws are subject to intermediate scrutiny, and it upheld it as a reasonable fit with Maryland's asserted interest in public safety uh, because it, the, the state was trying to reduce the availability of such weapons and magazines overall. So basically— these types of, uh, as the court called them, weapons of war are unprotected by the Constitution. The court also, the Supreme Court also declined to hear to review a Florida Supreme Court ruling on the state that state's open carry ban. So the court has not heard a major Second Amendment case uh, since there was Heller in 2008 and McDonald in 2010. And in the intervening years, the lower courts uh, have sort of been wandering in the wilderness of the Second Amendment, and I think that they could use some guidance on how to apply the. Uh, the the test laid out in in Heller and in, in in McDonald. Now, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch dissented from denial of cert in uh, in a case over the summer. Uh, this dealt with the uh, California concealed carry case, um, Peruta. They would have taken up the case, but a majority of the court, or at least four justices, didn't didn't agree. And you know, I think the lower courts could use some guidance from the Supreme Court on how to apply these standards. Um, but it seems like, for, at least for the time being, a majority is not interested in taking up a Second Amendment case. The D.C. Circuit, there is a case pending before the en banc court. Uh, the panel decision came out last summer, so there is hope that uh, I think it's the Pink Pistols case that this one may mm-hmm. may end up at SCOTUS in in the not so distant future. That's right. And Thomas and Gorsuch's dissent in the Peruta case really was very fiery. And they did seem to be inviting some scrutiny of state laws that seem to be overburdening Second Amendment rights to carry. So maybe you will see that kind of uh, lower court scrutiny here in the next few years. Um, The court did hear oral arguments in a number of interesting cases this week. And we're going to talk about three of them, oil states, digital realty and carpenter. So the court heard oral argument in an important patent case this week, Oil States Energy Services versus Greens Energy Group. So the issue here is whether the federal government's process for reviewing the validity of patents violates the Constitution. So Congress passed a law in 2011 setting up an an administrative review process with the goal of reducing patent litigation, which can be very costly and time-consuming. Now, under this process since 2011, 80% of patents that have been reviewed have been canceled. So that's a pretty high cancellation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so oil states filed a patent infringement suit against Greens Energy, which is another oil company, over its patent of a fracking technique. Uh, Greens Energy then asked the federal government to review oil states patent while the case was pending, uh, while the patent infringement suit was pending. So uh, the government decided to invalidate oil states patent uh, it, it, at that time. 
So oil states, understandably, was upset about this, and they went into federal court. And they argue that once the government grants a patent, only a federal court can decide whether it should be taken away because this is a property right.、Uh, the company also argues that、uh, this administrative review process violates the Seventh Amendment guarantee of a jury trial for suits at common law. And during the oral argument, Allison Ho, who is the、uh, lawyer for oil states, she pointed out that the federal courts had reviewed these cases for 400 years with no problems. In, Until 2011,、uh, when Congress passed this law, so the justices seemed pretty divided at the argument. Ginsburg and Kagan both said that the government needs to have some sort of process for reviewing patents because it, sometimes it makes errors and it needs to correct them. Sonia Sotomayor、uh, pointed out that there is still the opportunity to appeal any cancellation in federal court, but on the other hand,、uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch seemed concerned about. Um, the government giving out a benefit on a conditional basis,、uh, and here's a quote from Roberts. He said, "Haven't our cases rejected the idea that you have to take the bitter with the sweet?" And Breyer pointed out that there were some serious reliance interests at play that a company could invest billions of dollars only to have a patent canceled years later. So I think this is、uh, this is a case that we're going to be watching closely, and we expect a decision、uh, sometime in the spring or early summer. Digital Realty against Summers is a case that's on appeal from the Ninth Circuit, and many believed that the court, or just perhaps Justice Gorsuch, would have an opportunity to weigh in on Chevron deference. The issue in this case, however, was who is a protected whistleblower under the Dodd Frank Act.、Uh, specifically, it's whether the anti-retaliation protection for whistleblowers in Dodd Frank apply only to employees who meet the requirement. That's in the definition of Dodd Frank's whistleblower term of reporting alleged misconduct to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Of course, Congress passed Dodd Frank after the 2008 financial crisis to clean up the financial industry, and part of that effort、uh, involved incentivizing employees to report information about violations of securities laws to the SEC by giving the whistleblower a chunk of whatever monetary penalties may come from their reporting. But there's a separate provision out there、uh, that prohibits retaliation against whistleblowers for acts that are protected under other cross-reference statutes, including Sarbanes-Oxley, that has a broader definition of whistleblower. So, enter Paul Summers. He was fired from his job at Digital Realty in 2014, and he claimed that was in retaliation for reporting his supervisor for an alleged violation of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act to his senior management. He sued the company in district court. Under the alternative provision of the Dodd Frank Act that protects whistleblowers from retaliation against just that internal reporting of Sarbanes-Oxley violations, not reporting securities violations to the SEC. So Digital, of course, sought to dismiss his claim because he did not report the alleged violations to the SEC as Dodd Frank requires, and all this adds up to now the parties coming before the court. And arguing over whether Congress meant to limit Dodd Frank's whistleblower protections only to people who report violations to the SEC, just as Congress explicitly defined whistleblower as an individual who reports protected activity to the SEC, and this case was taken to be a Chevron deference case because some believe that Chevron here has gone too far, as Digital Realty argues the text is clear and the court has to rule. For them, but Summers is arguing no. This is in fact a Chevron case. The question isn't just about construing the statute. Here, Congress told the SEC to go out and enforce these whistleblower protections, and the SEC did that by interpreting the definition of whistleblower broadly to apply to anyone who reports a violation. And it is 
really unclear, as you might expect, from all of the <laughs> cross-referencing materials, how the court will want to go. Uh, there are several ways to read this statute. The justices seem to have plenty of different concerns about whether there are remedies for people who just report things internally inside their own company or not. Um, and we will wait and see whether or not, in fact, anyone touches the Chevron issue. Yeah. So when Justice Gorsuch was on the appeals court, he he wrote uh, he wrote a majority opinion and then a special concurrence to his own opinion, which was um, kind of interesting, uh, that that dealt with the Chevron case and, and basically saying this was the elephant in the room and that he was strongly suggesting that the Supreme Court should take up a case to reconsider Chevron deference. So I uh, wouldn't be surprised if uh, if we at least get a, a concurring opinion in, uh, from Gorsuch in this case, uh, talking about Chevron, if that doesn't end up playing a, a large part of the underlying ruling in the case. So we're going to talk with law professor Oren Kerr about the Carpenter case. But JM, do you want to briefly mention what the issue is there? Sure. Carpenter is the case dealing with whether the government can get a person's cell phone location records that are held by their cellular service providers without a warrant. We're pleased to have Oren Kerr with us today. He's a law professor and expert on criminal procedure. He also clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Oren. Glad to be here. So you filed an amicus brief in the Carpenter case arguing that these cell phone location records don't receive Fourth Amendment protection because they're the equivalent of police observing suspects in the public space. How do you think the oral argument went and what do you think were the key takeaways? I think the key takeaways from the argument is that a, a bunch of the justices are looking for a way to limit uh, government access to cell site records without really having much of a theory for how to do it. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that sometimes drives Fourth Amendment law is just the sense of the government shouldn't be able to do this. It's really sort of like a policy idea of, hey, wait a minute, this is giving the government too much power. And that idea seemed to have a lot of purchase on a bunch of the justices uh, at the argument yesterday, um, you know, a few justices were just really saying, we don't want to live in a world in which the government can, can do this, uh, can, can get access to tracking records going back historically really far back. And, and the, the big question was, if you take that view, how, how do you get there? What, what, what is the sort of doctrinal means that you use, the sort of you know, the legal tools you get to, to limit cell site collection? And each of the justices that advocated or seemed to be proposing a way of um, uh, a ruling for Carpenter in the case seemed to have a different theory of how the Fourth Amendment could could limit that. And so, um, for my own view, that this is actually outside the Fourth Amendment. This is a matter for legislative control. Uh, there seem to be two justices that that echoed that idea. One, uh, Justice Alito, uh, and the other, Justice Kennedy. Uh, but I, just based on what I heard, I, I don't think they're going to have a, a majority here. Uh, I think the the, the big takeaway. From the argument, probably the most remarkable um, um, aspect of the argument was Justice Gorsuch, who uh, seemed to believe that uh, seemed to be echoing this idea that uh, the Fourth Amendment should protect uh, government access, regulation of or access to cell site records on on a property theory. The idea being that um, the the cell site records that are generated and and, and held by the business. Uh, uh, are, are the property of the user. And so if the government is coming in and is, is getting copies of those records, that's akin to the government breaking into your house and taking your property, 
and and that that is, should be a Fourth Amendment search for that reason. So uh, how did the government with, respond to that? Uh, with some kind of befuddlement is the right answer. Um, so so I think everybody would agree or generally agree, you know, that taking somebody's property is a Fourth Amendment seizure of that property. Uh, what's tricky is that there's never been a, a, a recognition or an idea that cell site records are actually the property of the user. And um, so, so Michael Dreeben, arguing for the government, he, he was fighting the hypothetical from, from Justice Gorsuch. With, it was, no one's ever thought that giving information to somebody becomes that. You're, you're, it's your property that you're giving up. So here's, here's, here's what you know, Justice Alito actually responded to Alito's response. Um, in the argument, these are records that are the record business records of the cell phone provider. The user usually doesn't know that they exist. The user doesn't um, know what they are or what they say. The user can't access them, uh, and they're enti- it's entirely up to the business as to whether to um, create them, delete them, store them. It's all done outside of the user. How can that be the property of the user? That was Justice Alito's uh, view. Um, and, and so what's fascinating about this is this is a potentially a fifth vote for Carpenter on a very different theory uh, than what the other justices seem to be thinking, you know, sort of more the, you know, reasonable expectation of privacy idea. Add in Justice Gorsuch with a very libertarian form of the property approach and, and there might be five votes, but cobbled together from totally different theories of Fourth Amendment protection. So, Oren, part of the government's argument is that people voluntarily give this information to cell phone providers like Verizon and AT&T. So there is no expectation of privacy under the third-party doctrine. What were your thoughts on that before the oral argument? Did they change at all? And what were the justices' reactions to that argument? So um, I think that's right. I think it's, it's clearly the correct answer under current doctrine, I think, or, or pretty, pretty, to my mind, yes. That, that's why there was no split on this question below. There were five or six federal circuits and maybe ten state Supreme Courts. They'd all reached that result. I think that's the right result under existing law. And, and interestingly, Carpenter was not challenging uh, those cases. Um, so one answer would just be, yeah, this is the third-party doctrine. And that, that was Justice Alito's answer. He said, you know, we, we, we've been here before. This is, this is, you know, this is a, a clear uh, a result. And, um, you know, the other justices, I think, were, were not, their, their mindsets were just not on those cases. Those, their mindset was not, their mindsets were on how do, do we want to live in a world in which the government can access these records? You know, just, for example, Justice Breyer just very explicitly said, you know, Wow, there's all these records, you know. Do we? He, he was sort of clear in saying he's approaching this from a policy perspective of how do you balance these public interests and what rules you create that reflects the balance. Justice Sotomayor was pretty clear that she's worried about Big Brother and how do you stop Big Brother? And we don't want to live in a world of Big Brother. And you know, what's the doctrinal way of of blocking that? Um, and, and so that you know, there were a lot of it was very policy-oriented discussions. And what's tricky is that the, the case, to my mind, really boils down to one of which institution creates the rules. You know, should it be Congress that creates these rules? Should it be the courts that create these rules? And when when the discussion is a policy discussion about what is the best rule, 
the institutional question of which which branch of government creates the rule or, or recognizes the rule drops out, right? So you, you can't say, well, this is the right rule. Oh, but by the way, you shouldn't create it. Somebody else should create it uh, because, you know, if you're having a conversation about policy, then it's sort of implicitly judicial policy. So, so the sort of traditional doctrines and, and that they were in play, but I think the majority of the justices were really sort of looking at this case very differently. They were they were thinking, wow, the, um, you know, the government has access to these records they didn't used to have access to, and it's look, look not only at self-site record collection, but GPS collection and lots of other location tracking technologies, and treat them all kind of as a collective whole. That seemed to be the gist I took away, at least, from, from, from the questions. Traditionally, you'd say, we look at each individual technology, surveillance technology, individually, that we say, this is, you know, Physical observation is one technology. Getting access to historical cell site records is another technology. GPS tracking is a third technology. Installing a GPS device on a device is a fourth technology. And you'd analyze those all separately. And what I was hearing, at least, was justices wanting to kind of group all of those together and treat them all together as all of those being a search, and then try to come up with a rule that would that would do that. And, and the hard question was, what, what rule does that? Um, and how do you create, craft some exception to the third-party doctrine or some sort of rule that limits the practice and doesn't make a mess of, of existing law? Um, and, and Justice Breyer was maybe <laughs> the most explicit about this. It was sort of amusing. He basically, as I heard him, instead, you know, everyone's going to criticize us for arbitrarily coming up with a category and making a mess of everything. How do we avoid making a mess of everything? And he asked this to Michael Dreeben, the, the, the lawyer for the government, who responded like, yeah, you can't. You're going to make a mess of it. Of course, that's the government. <laughs> or you've, you've written previously about something called equilibrium balancing. Could you quickly say what that is? And is that something that could be relevant here? Yeah. So um, thank you. This, this is uh, and my my sort of big picture take on how the Supreme Court over time uh, responds to technological change in the Fourth Amendment setting, and, and the basic idea is that this is just descriptively what tends to happen is technology um, uh, changes the legal implications of old rules, uh, and so you'll have an old rule based on one technology, and then a new technology will come along, and that old rule suddenly has a totally new implication, and it either expands government power or restricts government power. And what the court will tend to do is will it'll adjust the old rules to try to restore the prior level of government power. And um, and so I think that's a, a actually a and, and I think justices do this a, across all ideological commitments. Originalist justices do this, non-originalist justices do this. Uh, and I think actually in kind of a Burkean conservative way, it's a sound way of of, of responding to technological change. Um, the question is, when do you engage in equilibrium adjustment? When has something happened that's so transformative that it requires a shift? Um, and and one takeaway, to, to put the Carpenter argument kind of in that framework, you, you saw probably a majority of the justices thinking, we have to engage in equilibrium adjustment. We have to change the rules because technology has expanded government power. We're just not sure how to change the rules. So Justice Breyer's question to Michael Dreeben, a way of thinking about it, was like, what should our equilibrium-adjusted rule be? Um, to which you know, Michael Dreeben's answer is, well, you shouldn't engage in equilibrium adjustment. You stick with the old rule. 
Um, and so this is a case where I suspect you're going to have a lot of um, post-argument memos among the justices trying to figure out, like, okay, what what is our proposed rule? Uh, fascinating in part because a lot of people have thought of this question, and there's been a lot of debate among academics as to what the rule should be. And no one, I think, has really come up with a satisfactory answer in the academic world. And, you know, you put together a court majority and give them a few months to come up with a majority opinion, and they're, you know, they're going to have to work really quickly, and you never quite know what they'll get. But I suspect that's where a majority of the court is going. So you mentioned uh, a number of the justices uh, discussing, you know, either grouping all of these different types of surveillance together and treating them in one way or, you know, treating cell phone location records differently from GPS, from from other things. So just stepping back a bit as a practical matter, can you explain how what the police did here, so using cell phone location records to see the movements of Timothy Carpenter, how is this different from the GPS case that, that the court heard, I think, back in 2012? Yeah, so it's different in a couple of, a couple of ways, and, and uh, so, so different in some ways, similar in other ways. So the, um, in the GPS case from 2012, the government installed a GPS device on uh, uh, Jones's car, without him knowing, so he had no idea who was being tracked. And it generated really precise records sort of constantly, constantly showing his location, or the location of his car, at least, over time. Uh, in this case, the way T-Mobile, the cell company, um, cell provider works, you would place a call, and then the call would be routed through the network, and T-Mobile would keep a record of what tower was used whenever a call was made or received. It would, have, it would actually have to be a phone call um, coming in or outgoing. And then T-Mobile would, in the course of that, they'd have to generate the record of what cell tower was used, which would give a resolution of where the phone was within like a mile or two. So it's really you know, very general records. Um, but, but, you know, a typical telephone user, I think the latest Pew study was that somebody makes a typical cell phone call like, five times a day or something like that. It turns out Carpenter made like 100 phone calls a day. And so the government collected 127 days of uh, uh, location records showing sort of roughly what neighborhood he was in. You know, how is it similar? How is it different? Well, it's similar in that in a general sense, it's location tracking historic, it's location tracking over time. That's the big similarity. Um, much lower resolution. It's not within like 50 feet. It's within you know a mile or two. That's pretty different. It's not every 30 seconds. It's whenever a call was made, which for most people would be a few times a day, but for Carpenter it turns out was a lot. Uh, and then the other big difference is that you know Carpenter was using a device which technologically had to had to work through a network, right? So whenever you have a cell phone, you know you're signing up with a contract with a, a network provider. And if you have any idea how cell phones work, you know that they have to route your call through cell towers. And they have to know roughly where you are because you know, how else do they get the call to you and how <laughs> else do they send your calls? So it's, it's, there's a knowing aspect to it, which... Um, you could say, well, people know or at least should know that that's how the technology works, and therefore they sort of are knowingly creating these records. Or you could say, well, people actually don't know how technology works. They're just sort of going through life, and records are being created or not, and they should all they, they should be treated the same way. Uh, so 
Justice Kagan suggested that it was basically the same. It's long-term tracking of somebody's movements, and that sort of you draw the category as including all, all of that. Or you could say this is really different because it's sort of knowingly creating a record. It's not a very precise record, and it's not very detailed, and it's not all that different from, like, phone numbers dialed from your phone, which, you know, back in the 1979 case of Smith versus Maryland, Smith is making phone calls from his home, and he's giving up his location information and what exact numbers he's dialing. And the Supreme Court says, well, that's, you know, you gave that to the phone company. You can't then say that's my private information. So trying to figure out the right analogy and how similar is similar enough and how different is different enough was really very much in play in the argument. Well, we're certainly going to be looking forward to the decision, which I think won't be coming out for uh, for a while. This is one that the justices are going to be grappling with. So um, shifting shifting gears a bit, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience uh, working for Justice Kennedy and, and maybe what's your favorite memory of your time in his chambers? Sure. So, uh, I mean, Justice Kennedy is a great boss, a very warm uh, friendly, uh, friendly guy and, and um, you know, obviously is very experienced. Uh, justice. Uh, I think probably my favorite memory was um, working on opinions. Uh, he has a desk that's overlooking the Capitol, you know, near the, the front of the Supreme Court building, and it's beautiful chambers with a desk overlooking the Capitol, Capitol Dome. And, um, you know, time sitting at, at just one on one, he and I working, you know, uh, there'd be a draft opinion, and he'd be working on the opinion, and I'd be taking notes. and. And you know, the, the process of working on a majority opinion of the Supreme Court in the Supreme Court building, overlooking the Capitol building, you just sort of have to fix <laughs> yourself and say, wow, this is, a, this is kind of just an amazing experience. It's an amazing experience. Uh, and I think that's, that's probably my fondest sort of picture I have of, of the clerkship. So uh, as a follow-up, would you care to make any predictions about when he will or won't announce his retirement? I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have a you know the inside scoop. Yeah, I, I have absolutely no idea. Okay, safer territory then. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick, and what would you want to talk about? Ah, man, yeah, this one's this one's impossible. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to pick two just to, to cheat. Um, we'll allow it. Okay, good. Uh, always been a, lo- a great fan of uh, the second Justice Harlan. And uh, I would have loved to talk to uh, Justice Harlan about his views of the Warren Court and, um, in particular, the Katz concurring opinion that he wrote that became the most influential uh, concurring opinion in Fourth Amendment law. Just what did he have in mind? I would have loved to find out. Um, I think I know, but I want to know if my theory is right uh, about what he was really thinking with that that opinion. And I just think he was one of the most uh, you know thoughtful. Um, you know, interesting uh, uh, justices. And he's also, I think of him as a, a Burkean conservative like myself. So I, I sort of imagined we would we would find a lot to agree about. Um, and then the other would be Justice Jackson, uh, who who in some ways fits that mold as well. I just think he's he, he had such fascinating experiences between being a justice and, you know, being the Nuremberg prosecutor. And just to hear hear his life experience, I think, would just be absolutely fascinating. Well, Oren, thank you so much for joining us, and best wishes on your trip out to California. Thank you very much. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Fourth Amendment edition, where I'm going to try to stump my guest host, J.M. Seibler. Are you ready? Fire away. (laughs) First question. 
Which of the following is not an exception to the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement? And I'm going to give you, give you four choices, and one of them is one that I made up. One, searches of automobiles, including trunks. Two, checking an arrestee's cell phone call log. Three, stops and frisks on the street. Or four, taking inventory of an arrestee's possessions. I'll give you a hint if you want it. Sure. The one that I made up was the subject of a Supreme Court case that was decided just a few years ago. I think it's about searching the calls. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. I made up that uh, that there is a warrant exce- an exception to the warrant requirement for checking an arrestee's cell phone call log. The Supreme Court rejected that as an exception to the warrant requirement. So well done. So I had a moment of hesitation. There. Some of those <laughs> might be debatable. And I was a little bit concerned that you were throwing a trick question at me. <laughs> I would never do that. Okay. Next question. What case incorporated the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable search and seizure against the states? Oh, I do not remember the name of that case, but I do think that incorporating all of these procedural requirements might have been a little bit of a misstep. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Mapp versus Ohio in 1961. There you when, go. That's uh, right. th- there were quite a few uh, criminal law cases uh, in, in that era, in that decade. All right, third question. What case first expanded the Fourth Amendment protections to electronic surveillance? And there was a very noteworthy concurrence that Oren Kerr might have referenced during our interview? I think that you are talking about Justice Harlan's Katz concurrence. That is correct. Which he correct. cited extensively in his brief <laughs> before the court in Carpenter. That is correct. It was Katz versus the United States, 1967. And uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan II's concurrence established the reasonable expectation of privacy standard that has been used in subsequent Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Fourth and final question. In what case did the Supreme Court decide that the police's use of thermal imaging to monitor the goings-on inside a person's home violated the Fourth Amendment? Mm-hmm. The Kylo decision where they had the thermal heat imaging, correct, to suss out the marijuana uh, <laughs> manufacturing operation going inside someone's house. That is correct. I forget the year. It was, I think, in the early 90s, but this was written by Justice Scalia. And uh, Thomas joined the majority with, uh, I believe, Breyer and Ginsburg and maybe one other of the liberals. So it was kind of an interesting interesting bedfellows sort of right, case. Right, because apparently not everyone goes around flying helicopters with thermal imaging goggles uh, <laughs> back in the 90s anyway. Yeah, that was Wasn't a, a fad yet. It was a great case. Well, Well done, Jam. I think you did a a great job. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. And please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. 